Welcome back to Kings of the North. Doug Lamerice and Bill Landis wrapping up the 2023 college football season. Landis, that means awards. No trophies yet. Not yet. Someday. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking up like buying used trophies and that kind of thing. Well, we want to do it right. I was I was like looking up like how much does it cost to have somebody make you a trophy? And it's like $50 to $5,000. So we have some stuff to work with. But we are going to hand out the inaugural. And we'll set. I think what we'll do is we'll send them the trophy like after the fact like if by year two of our awards next year i'm hoping we have trophies then we'll send the winners and say hey you won last year here's your trophy are you down with that yeah did you look up how much it costs to have a sword made uh so i did not go to the renaissance fair in ohio this year but i went last year twice i went to the regular renaissance fair and then i went to the christmas renaissance fair oh that sounds lovely Oh, we should go. Oh, we'll, we'll broadcast live. We'll, okay. we'll definitely do a bowl preview show from the Christmas Renaissance Fair uh, this coming season. But they have swords for sale there all over the place. So I was like, well, I'm just gonna, I'll just buy a sword when I go back this year. And then it just didn't fit in my schedule. Okay. So you and I will do like a little, um, like a YouTube short about it. Sword shopping with Bill and Doug. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. For the KOTN sword. But also... Right. I mean, I think we need to have a banquet so we can hand it out. I don't really want to ship a sword. Like, hey, Joe Alt, we we sent you a sword. Be on the lookout. Yeah. From FedEx for your sword package. So we got plans, but we're going to hand out at the end of this show, the King of the North, best Northern player. We already established there are five nominees because we're doing it like the Heisman should. By the way, we are all noting more discussion. People seized on to. Michael Penix looking pretty darn good in the playoff and said, hey, should they hand out the Heisman after the season? But they didn't credit me for starting the conversation. Unbelievable. I like it when I'm mad that I don't get credit for things and Bill's like, yeah, good. No, I was was thinking of you when I saw that, when I saw those conversations happening. I just feel like they should credit me. Please credit We're going to try to get them to move the Heisman to the end of the year. In In the meantime, we're doing what we do here. We had five finalists for the king of the north joe alt the notre dame offensive tackle jerzon newton the illinois defensive tackle ohio state receiver marvin harrison jr and two quarterbacks bo nix of oregon and michael Penix of washington we are picking now based off partially it's still brunt of the regular season but we have more information what happened later we're going to announce our king of the north we're also going to announce coach of the north we're also going to announce previous to that, I'm running the show backwards, we're going to have our all-North offensive team and our all-North de- defensive team. We did a mid-season all-North team or had the year-end one. A lot of guys stayed the same, not all of them, some changed. And we're also going to hand out, before that, some Northern superlatives, best offense, best defense, most disappointing team, team on the rise, most improved team, game of the year, crazy game of the year, biggest upset, best win over the South and run through the other candidates in those. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about Nick Saban. You were not able to join me on the live show no. that we did the day Nick Saban retired, where we talked about it from a Northern perspective. I would direct anybody there. If you're watching this on our YouTube channel, go in the feed for live. It's a live show in there. It was live. It's not live anymore. But it sits there in the live feed. So go find that. Those were my initial thoughts on Nick Saban. But there was something that I wanted to talk about and I forgot to talk about, but I also, I had not researched it at that point. And I want to, I have researched it now. If you put into the Google machine, the phrase 
Nick Saban, diabolical scheduling genius. I think perhaps the only thing that comes up is a story that I wrote for Cleveland.com in 2016, I believe. I was just referencing it again. Do you ever do that? You go back and read your old stuff? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. I remember I remember you writing that story too. Was it the year that they played USC? Yes. Yeah. And USC was like fake good. Yeah. And so Nick Saban got in this, uh, Alabama got in this habit of playing these neutral site non-conference games against programs with big names who actually weren't that good. And they would open the season with them, but they never came North. I'm pretty sure this is right. Do you know how many games Nick Saban in 17 years at Alabama, how many games he played in the North as defined by our Northern college football definition? One. It's two, but do you know why it's two? Because the Alabama-Georgia National Championship game was in Indy. That's the one I had in mind, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. one other one, though. Okay. There's a real one that made him say, I'm never doing oh, that oh, again. Oh, Penn State? Penn State. They yeah. had a home-and-home home with Penn State. I went to Alabama did. Yeah. In the uh, 2010 and 2011 season. Yeah. The 2010 game was, was in Tuscaloosa, and the 2011 game was in State College. And that was it. They had a Michigan State home and home that I believe was scheduled for 12 and 13, and they canceled that, and they said, and they never did it again. He played in State College in his 7, 8, 9, 10, fifth year at Alabama and said, I'm never doing that again. So I'm mad at myself because there was a clue that Nick Saban was going to retire at the end of this season. We'll talk about the clue in a second. And I should have, I should have just, I should have, all season, I should have been like, it's his last year. Here's why. It's his last year. Here's why. Do you want to know what Nick Saban's record against the North was? Because he did play him. He just mm -hmm. didn't play him in the North. You want to guess? I know what it is. You can tell the people. How do you know what it is? Because I've seen the, because I saw the graphic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 14 and three against the North. Now. There's four other border games I didn't count. He played Virginia Tech twice. He played Louisville. He played Kansas State. By next season, we may be claiming them. For now, I'm not claiming them. Those games, those 17 games that Nick Saban played against the North, six were in college football playoff semifinals. Four were in bowls. Three were neutral site games. Two were title games. One against Ohio State, one against Notre Dame. And then it was the home and home with Penn State, one on the road and one at home. So those are the how they occurred, right? He's four and two in semifinals, lost to Michigan, lost to Ohio State, was three and one in bowls. So those are the three losses. The three Nick Saban losses to the North, Michigan in the last game of his career, Ohio State in the 2014 semifinal. Do you know what the other one is? I don't actually, no. Wasn't it like his first year? 2008, his second year, his first bowl game, his first good, well, no, it's not his first bowl game. They actually made the, like the uh, Shreveport Bowl, whatever that is, in his first year in 2007. 2008, they go, to, they lose to Florida in the SEC national champ, uh, SEC championship game. They go to the Sugar Bowl and they lose to Utah. Oh, yeah. You know okay. They yeah, I do remember Utah. that. Yeah. Utah's in the north. Utah's in the north. So four and two in semifinals, three and one in bowls. And then the neutral site games, he beat Michigan in a neutral site game. He beat Wisconsin in a neutral site game. 
and he beat uh, West Virginia in a neutral site game, just doing what Saban did. 17 games against the North. These are the states those games were played mm-hmm. in. He was 5-0 and in Texas. He was 4-0 and in Florida. He was 1-2 and in Louisiana. He was 2-0 and in Georgia. He was 1-0 and in Pennsylvania, 1-0 and in Alabama, and 0-1 and in California. So when he, like, California, by the way, right? Not a – yeah. Play that, play that Michigan Alabama game in the Sugar Bowl, their second home. Maybe we're talking about a different deal here, right? So yeah, for sure. He just was smart enough to not go. Is he is he diabolical? Is it diabolical to say, nope, I'm from West Virginia. I coached in Ohio. I coached in Michigan, and I'm never going back. Yeah. Diabolical, right? Absolutely the diabolical. Strategic. And you know, I don't I don't know that I respect it because I wish that they would have come up here more than a handful of times. Um, but I get it. Like, especially once, once they reach a certain point of cachet in Alabama, which happened very quickly, it's like, you're not going to make me come up there. You want to play me? You want to make the television money? You're going to come down here and you're going to play. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they had, all, they had all the leverage there when I guess, I guess when they were uh, organizing those games, but yes, diabolical. Absolutely. That's why I love the word diabolical. Cause diabolical is like, Oh, you, but grudging respect. Doesn't buy yes. diabolical imply? Oh, I hate it, but oh, I can't buy. It's like I hate it, but I would have done the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know why you did it, but yeah. I hate it. I wish I thought of it. Never came up here. So guess what's happening? Alabama's coming north, starting in twenty twenty four. They changed their entire scheduling philosophy. Over the next, I believe it is 12 years. Let's see, 2024 through 2035. 12 years. They have 14 games, I believe it is, scheduled with the North. Seven at home and seven on the road. They have home and home series scheduled with Wisconsin, West Virginia, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Boston College, Minnesota, and Virginia Tech over the next 12 years. Some of them, they have more than one in a year. Yeah. And I saw this happening when they, and, and one of them is Ohio State. Obviously, people know. We, we covered Ohio State for a long time. When that got scheduled, so they were starting to do it. They scheduled the Wisconsin stuff. They scheduled the Notre Dame stuff. And I was like, there's a hole. There's a hole. Please, dear, please, can we get an Ohio State-Alabama series? Please. And we got it. And now Nick Saban is not going to be part of it. And sure. shouldn't we have known, Landis? It's a complete departure. 1,000%. And Nick okayed it because Nick knew he wasn't going to have to deal with it. How could we not have known? They are at Wisconsin September 14th, 2024. And before Nick Saban retired, you know what I was thinking that should happen on September 14th, 2024, Landis? Hmm. Live Kings of the North from Madison, from Wisconsin. Madison. Yeah. As Alabama comes north. Welcome. Welcome Tide will be the welcome party. But now we're going to be welcoming not Nick Saban. Isn't this a great clue? It's such a change. It's so strategic. And you can say yes in a 12-team playoff world, right? There's more wiggle room, whatever. I do think, I think it's better for college football fans. This has been my big thing. It's, it's more fun to have them on your campus, you know, and we've been around a lot of the Ohio state home and homes, Ohio state, Texas, 
home and home on your campuses. They were supposed to do it with Oregon. The Ohio State trip to Oregon got wiped out by COVID, but Ohio State Washington has been done. Ohio State Virginia, Virginia Tech, Ohio State Miami, Florida, Ohio State Oklahoma. Ohio now Ohio State's also had a bunch with the SEC on the on the docket that got wiped out. They had a Georgia one on the schedule once upon a time, canceled it. They had a Tennessee one on the schedule once upon a time, canceled it. But it's so much better, especially when it's two different geographical locations. Is it home and home? Give your fans a chance to go to that campus. Isn't it so much better? Yeah, it's it's way better. And, and I think um, I think the sport has come around on that, right? It, it seems like we're getting fewer and fewer of those like random neutral site yeah. week one, week two kind of games. Seems like everyone's doing the home and home moving forward. Um, but even but even with that, like I I like that it's not just you know the helmet games. It's not just Alabama, Ohio. So like Alabama going to Minnesota is cool. Like I, that's you would never expect to see that kind of matchup. And I, I don't know what else is out there in terms of the, the, the future scheduling, but I'm sure there's some other ones out there, like Alabama, Boston College. Like that's really kind of random and weird, but I like it. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad that it's going this direction. And but I, I also I I feel like you were on this, like around the time that Alabama started announcing these, because I I'm having a strange feeling of deja vu that we have discussed previously that like there was no way Nick Saban was going to be around when these games happened, given his track record of scheduling prior, prior to these. Um, yeah. So, and I, and I think it was you who said that, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you have been on this for a number of years and maybe you're just forgetting that and trying yeah. to get on it now. Maybe I did know, but I should have hammered yeah. it more this year. So do you, so now the thing that happens and it's, we all know this, the team for whatever reason, college football schedules out 12 years in advance. It's insane. It's, I mean, I, and they can pretend the reason that, that they do it is because somebody does it and then you get worried you're not going to be able to do it when there's yep. no reason for anybody to do it more than five years out. Are they going to start canceling them? Like, are, like are, are they, is, do you think Ohio State, Alabama will actually happen? Do you think that Ohio, that Alabama, Notre Dame will actually happen? I certainly, like, I'm, I've said I'll throw my body in front of it. Like, I will do, I will shame, shame them into playing if I can because it's so good for the sport it's so good and just because the sec and the big 10 are expanding like this should not be lost just because you might play them in the playoff it's not the same thing i want ohio state fans in tuscaloosa i want alabama fans in south bend right just like we did with ohio state and notre dame this year like you need to see those sites you need to experience the the grandeur of other places but i'm worried yeah um, no, um, are you less worried? Maybe because because like would Saban have been like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm like, if he was still there, he would have canceled it. But maybe the new guy would be like, I will play whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I depends on who the new guy is. I guess. I guess that the the things that worry me in terms of them potentially being canceled are like because I think the reason teams are more willing to do these is the understanding that suffering a loss is less catastrophic than it yeah. would have been prior to the twelve team playoff. But like. If Alabama goes to Wisconsin and loses and that ends up being loss number three that becomes prohibitive for them to get into the college football playoff, then I could see some teams rethinking some of these matchups and, and perhaps um, canceling the ones that are farther down the road. And then the other thing is, too, like I think we all agree that we're eventually going to get to the basically northern-southern split of super conferences um, if and when that happens or when that happens. Do schedules get wiped out entirely and just sort of reworked in a way that we lose some of those matchups or maybe it's they're they're 
Alabama ends up playing like the Oklahoma states of the world instead of like the Wisconsin's yeah. that, that kind of stuff. I hope not. I, I hope yeah. we hold on to this. I think it's an important part and it's a fun part. And actually the way the sport's evolving, it should encourage this, not discourage this. I'm very much on the lookout as much as I think the SEC should play nine conference games instead of eight, the way the Big Ten does. I think if the SEC goes to nine, I think that actually increases the chances of Bama canceling these major non-conference games. Because if Alabama is saying to itself, well, listen, man, we already have a conference schedule in a given year that includes Texas, LSU, Old Miss, Georgia and Tennessee. We're not going to Notre Dame also. We're not going to Ohio yeah. State also. Right? Yeah. That so I think you should play more conference games, but as long as the SEC stays at 8, I think I think probably these stay. For the record, the Northern teams Nick Saban's record against them, he was 1 and 0. This is just at Alabama. He was 1 and 0 against Colorado, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Washington and Cincinnati. He was 2-0 against Penn State, Notre Dame, and Michigan State. He was 2-1 against Michigan. He was 1-1 against Ohio State, and he was 0-1 against the best coach in college football, Kyle Whittingham, and Utah, right? Um, Okay. We wanted to touch on that because I think it was worth uh, examining and reminding you, I hope you're excited. Let's go north. Do you want to go to Madison? I love medicine. It's the best college town in America. It, there, and I don't think there's like another game that would like prevent us from going up there. Not where we're going to be. We're not going to be live on the scene every weekend with Kings of the North, but we, I think we want to be alert for opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Bama plus Cheeseheads is a good start for us. It's, it's a really good cross section of America, Alabama fans and Wisconsin fans. Like I would like yeah. to be in the middle of that. Could yeah. get a little, could get a little uh, testy. And I would like the idea of being with our northern people and having a cram it. The South can cram it pregame tailgate, right? Mm. Or something like, or a Friday show that is, well, come, hey, swing by. It's the Kings of the North. The South can cram it, cram it. I can work on saying it. Friday show. So we'll keep it in mind. But for now, when we come back, we're going to start giving out awards for the North for this season, starting with best offense, best defense. We'll do that next on Kings of the North. All right, time for some Kings of the North award winners, superlatives, things that we, uh, groups, right? This is the team awards. We're going to do our our individual uh, all-North teams for the players later, and we'll start off with something that I think perhaps already we might have gotten wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you a question before we start? Yeah. Did you you win any superlatives when you were in high school? Uh, You don't. don't, uh, Yeah, I did. I won a couple. Yeah, a couple. Nice. Just curious. Not in high school. I got most studious when I in eighth grade, though. Really? Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. yeah. I used to be. I used to be smart. No, 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 no. You're very yeah. smart. Um, you, you wear Phillies hat a lot, which I, I think do. throws people off. Yeah. But if you wore like a, if you wore a beret and smoked a pipe, people <laughs> would be like, "Oh yeah, that guy. There he is. Yeah, he's got it." Who's on your shirt today? Is this a GI uh, Joe? No, it's a band I like called Boy Genius. Yeah, see, like that. That just feels like you're a guy who lives in your car and drives around <laughs> and listens to random bands. Yeah. But you're actually very intelligent. Well, I get, I get by. Yeah. Best offense, Washington. That's who we picked. Are we right? You think it might have been Oregon? Uh, Oregon led the nation with 44.2 points per game. Washington was fourth in the north, 36 points per game. The FEI ratings, which we like to cite, 
had Oregon as the best offense, Washington as the sixth best offense. We talked a lot about the Washington aerial assault. We talked a lot about the way Oregon does its business and Washington does its business, previewing the two times that Oregon and Washington played. There's a part of me after watching Washington against Michigan that wonders how the Oregon offense would have fared against Michigan with a little bit more variety in the passing game, certainly a better running game. So I, I'm not saying Washington is wrong. Oregon might be as right. And if you're an Oregon fan yeah. listening to this and you're screaming, I, I understand why you're screaming. I think it's hard when you do things like this. It's like, do you just want to be a stickler for what the statistics tell you? And I, I don't mean I think that's wrong, but but if you were of that mind, then clearly I think it would take you to Oregon. Um, I would rather think of it similar to the way that you've described the Heisman Trophy about like the story of the season kind of thing. And it's like Washington had a really good offense this year. When Washington's offense was clicking on all cylinders, I think it was the best offense in the country, and it got them to the national championship game. So I'm okay, I'm okay with Washington being the pick here. It was it was my pick. I did consider Oregon. I I didn't consider any other offense. Um, but when you you line them up and like the statistics, the, the statistics, excuse me, favor Oregon. But there were also two head to head matchups that Washington won. Yeah. With its offense, and then Washington got to the national title, the playoff in the national title game, um, on the back of its of its offense. So I, I'm I'm very much comfortable with Washington winning here, but certainly give a tip of the cap to what Oregon was able to do on offense this year. You and I like the site uh, collegefootballdata.com. You can make graphs there. Mm -hmm. When you make the graph for success rate, and it's free to everybody. If you guys want to go dork around, sometimes yeah, people great. say, "Hey, where'd you get that stats?" Like we look at PFF stuff that's like behind a pay. What you have to pay for PFF? But there's a lot of stuff that we look at um, on collegefootballdata.com on the Brian uh, Fremo website that is the FEI ratings at cfbstats.com. It's all free, so like you guys can go find this too. But when you put in rushing play success rate, passing play success rate. And you look at the graph, Oregon is in the top corner for both in the whole country. Their success rate running the ball and throwing the ball was, was number one in both. So, like, that's another part. And Washington's up there, but it's like Oregon way up there, LSU right behind him, and then like Washington kind of in the next tier. I'm not saying we're wrong. I'm where I want to make sure we give Oregon credit yeah. and acknowledge the people who think we got it wrong. This one I think is not wrong. Best defense is Michigan. Michigan, 10.4 points per game. That was the best in the country. A lot of northern defenses up there, right? The, the, the top, let's see, the tops, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Defense, no, the top nine defenses in terms of points allowed, eight of them are in the north. It's all northern teams except for Georgia. It's Michigan 1, Ohio State 2, Penn State 3, Iowa 4, Georgia 5, Ohio University 6, Notre Dame 7, Miami of Ohio 8, and Oregon 9. That's not the end-all be-all, but then FEI rating, Michigan is also number one, Ohio State 2, Iowa 3. Not a lot of dis discussion here, right? No, no, not for me. They're, like I, I looked at the FEI stuff too. Michigan's number one, like in the overall FEI rating. Um, they're number one in points per drive, number one in available yards, number one in touchdown rate, number one in first down rate. They were just like elite, elite, elite across the board with everything they did. And I think like throughout the season, there was a question of like, okay, they're they're statistically very good. They haven't played very many offenses yet. But then at the end of the year, they did. 
um, I think performed quite well against Ohio State, um, obviously performed well against Alabama, and then shut down the offense that we think um, was you know 1A or 1B for best offense in the country in the national championship. So um, I, th- I think Michigan's defense is the best in the North, and I think it actually turned out that Michigan's defense was the best in the country this year. Yeah. Iowa, yeah, like Iowa got a lot of attention. We we got you have to acknowledge the fact that like when Iowa played good teams, like there's as much as people want to say like Iowa's defense is awesome, and it is. And like, oh man, if you they gave up 31 to Penn State, they didn't yeah. really compete with Michigan. They got rolled by Tennessee in the bowl game. Like when they played anybody good, this is always confusing in the North, especially in the Big Ten West especially in the Big Ten, where the offenses traditionally have not been as good, how much are the defenses good or how much are the defenses propped up statistically because the offenses are bad? Like, there's, I, I don't want to... Phil Parker won the Broyles Award as the best assistant in college football. I think Sharon Moore should have won instead from Michigan, but he is a worthy winner. Cooper DeGene and Jay Higgins and Joe Evans and Sebastian Castro and Xavier Wampa and the this the the incredible depth of talent on the Iowa defense needs to be acknowledged, but they got rolled by teams that had an offensive pulse. Yes, they did. But I I, I agree with that. But I also I was annoyed during bowl season because there was a lot of that discussion happening, yeah. especially like around the Penn State defense. It was like, oh, Penn State gave up a bunch of points to Ole Miss. The Big Ten defenses in particular, like talking about Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, aren't as good as everyone thinks they are because they played bad offenses all year. Penn State was missing its like four best defensive players, and then Abdul Carter like was hurt for that entire game. I would like to see and their coordinator. Full, and their coordinator was gone. I'd like to see a full strength Penn State defense against Ole Miss and how that plays out. But then also like Ohio State's defense had Missouri like in a blender for the majority of that game. Missouri couldn't do anything. And then Michigan won a national championship, I think, on yep. the back of its defense. So I think a lot of what we saw defensively from teams in the North was validated this year. But it's a fair point that maybe they don't weren't always playing the best offenses, but the handful that, that had to play good offenses on big stages, I did think more than yep. backed it up um, by the end of the year. Iowa was the least among those, right? Because yes, obviously yeah, Cooper yeah. DeGene got hurt at the end of the year, and that's a big deal. But they still had Phil Parker, and they didn't have a bunch of guys going to the NFL. And and Nico Iamalieva at Tennessee kind of did his thing in his first career start as a freshman yeah. quarterback for Tennessee. Michigan, best defense. Congratulations. I mean, it's one thing to win a national championship and go 15-0. and That's fine. It's another thing to win the inaugural best defense award on Kings of the North. So yeah, hang that in Schembechler Hall. All right. We're going to do Team on the Rise. Also, I don't know about this one. I think it's right. Nebraska? I have to. I, I am handing this award to Matt Rule, and on the award it says Program on the Rise, and then the plaque says Nebraska with a question mark yeah. after the word Nebraska. Because they didn't make a bowl, they are 5-24 and 24 in one-score games over this last period of time that has Nebraska fans beating their head against a wall. It's like the defining stat of why Scott Frost got fired. And then Matt Rule came in and it was like, okay, we're not one score game. They were one in five in one score games this year. And they they were five and three and didn't make a bowl because they fell apart down the stretch. Their last four games, lost by three, lost by three, lost in overtime, lost by three. Like it's amazing. Like they, but... We're taking in the totality of what is happening there, which is a formerly successful college football coach in Matt Rule has taken over the program, seems to have it in the right direction. 
They're doing some things in the transfer portal. And most importantly, they got a five-star freshman quarterback yeah. in this recruiting class. So are we sure it's Nebraska program on the rise? It's probably a little bit of a reach. I, I It was the first team that you I... You and I have both agreed on it, though. You yes, and I are both like yes. Nebraska. Well, part of it for me is... It's actually interesting. I, I went back to double-check this. Nebraska's preseason win total was six. They actually ended up below that. They ended up with five. Um, so in a way they underperform relative to expectations, but I never really viewed Nebraska as a, as a six wing team. I thought they were going to be a disaster this year and they were particularly good. But as we've talked about a couple of times, like if you look at what Matt rule has done previously, this first year in Nebraska looks much better than Matt rules first year at temple, Matt rules first year at Baylor. And then there was like instant improvement in year two at, at both of those places. Um, he went from two and 10 to six and six year one to year two at Temple, and from one and 11 to seven and six, and from year one to year two at Baylor. So I factored that in a little bit here too. Like if five and seven is a starting point, then what's year two look like? Does year two perhaps look like a eight and four bowl season for, for Nebraska? And maybe that's um, flimsy logic. For, uh, maybe maybe it will end up being so, but a lot of it's belief in Matt Rule as a program builder. Even, even if Nebraska left a lot to be desired this year, I think if you combine Matt Rule program builder with what they seem to be doing, building their roster, and then obviously landing Dylan Riola. I think Nebraska is clearly a program on the rise, but you know, if someone wants to argue for someone else in the North to be the winner here, I'd, I'd hear that argument. Differentiation here, which I think I think people realize this. It's always very important to me. There's a difference between program and team. They didn't deserve a team award based on 2023. Program, totality, structure, recruiting, that kind of thing, a program award, a team award wouldn't make sense for them. Hey, Nebraska in 2023, yeah. we're one in five and one score games and lost their last four. But a program award makes more sense. So I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I, I, and I, did, I didn't have like another one that jumped out to me that was like, oh, it's got to be this. Because I think part of it here is like that something has shifted. And the, yeah. uh, the hiring of Matt Rule and the the landing of Dylan Rayola in the recruiting class those are probably those are two gigantic shifts, and I think those shifts as a program are why Nebraska makes the most sense here. Yeah, I I, I don't really know who else in the North you could consider. Like again, Oregon for, for for vastly different reasons. Like Oregon going from good program to elite program maybe is worth is worth considering. Although I think they probably need to show more before we consider them elite. Um, or if you wanted to say like. Utah, because Utah is always very good, and now it's going to go to a league where it's, it seems to have more of a competitive of advantage um, against most of its peers in that league than it did in the Pac-12. Like maybe, maybe that would be one, too, but I, I think we're okay here with Nebraska. All right, now this is a team award. This is most improved team. I went through our 28 Northern teams. People know we have 28 Northern teams. That's the 14 teams in the Big Ten, six in the old Pac-12, three in the ACC, four in the Big 12, and Notre Dame. And we might be adding teams. Three teams had the same number of wins in 2023 that they had in 2022. Only three. Ohio State, Maryland, and Wisconsin had the same number of wins. So that was, and I just did number of wins. 12 teams improved their win total from the year before 13 teams had fewer wins than the year before. So I do think for most improved team, we got to select from one of those 12 that improved their overall win total, right? Mm -hmm. There were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven teams in the North that improved their win total by at least three 
this season. I will go in reverse order. Rutgers, Colorado, and Washington and Iowa State all improved their win total by three wins. And that's a very different ways you can do that. Colorado went from one to four. Washington went from 11 to 14, but you still improved by three wins, right? Those four programs improved by three. West Virginia and Boston College each improved by four wins. West Virginia went from five to nine. Boston College went from three to seven. One Northern team improved by seven wins in 2023. Do you know who it is? West Virginia? Northwestern. Northwestern. Went from one to eight. And that's why our most improved team is West Virginia. (laughs) Yeah. What did did we... Now, we don't have most surprising team. That would be Northwestern. That would be Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Most improved is, to me, again, is a little bit more like of a plan of like you took a next step. Northwestern was like they were they were good. They had a terrible year. They were good. They had a terrible year. They had another terrible year. Their program got ripped apart. Everyone thought they were going to stink, and they won eight games. I don't I don't know that that's actual like improvement. Like they weren't out there like chugging along, like plugging away. Hey, we're going to get better this year. It was a miracle. Mm-hmm. So they are docked for having a miracle season. West Virginia chugged along. Hey, people think what? And and like Neil Brown, and we talked about West Virginia a decent amount this year. I actually think, no offense to Northwestern, and it's eight when it's seven win improvement. I think West Virginia from five wins to nine actually better fits this category. Yeah, and, and part of it for for me at least in in picking West Virginia too was being picked to finish dead last in the Big Twelve and then finishing fourth. Yep. Um, in in the conference, which was like I think a, a you know a decent conference this year that had a team um get to the college football playoffs. So yeah. Um, I, I think I agree with you, like on you know, a Northwestern West Virginia comparison, and it is probably incredibly unfair um, to, to Northwestern, but um, five wins to nine wins, basement or predicted basement to top five in the conference um, did feel a little more noteworthy to me than improving from one win to, or having a seven win improvement, but, you know, they also did it in a Big Ten West that wasn't particularly impressive this year. Yeah. So we're okay with it. There were five Northern teams that did not make a bowl in 2022 that did make a bowl in 2023. That's West Virginia, Northwestern, Boston College, Iowa State, and Rutgers. So congratulations to those five programs. We'll now move to most disappointing. 13 teams had fewer wins in 2023 than the year before. These were the six programs with the biggest drop-off in wins. BYU, Minnesota, and Illinois all went down three wins. Purdue went down four. And Cincinnati and Pitt each went down six. That's a pretty big drop-off. There are six teams that made a bowl in 2022 that did not make it in 2023 of our 28 Northern teams. Pitt, BYU, Cincinnati, Washington State, Purdue, and Illinois. And we decided that our most disappointing team is Illinois. Now, that yeah. they did not have the biggest drop-off. But I love the Brett Bielema hire at Illinois. 
2023 was year three for him. They had won eight games in 2022. Like 2021, I think it was like a good first year. They were coming out. They were playing 19 offensive linemen and trying to win games five to two when it was working. And they won five games that year and they laid a foundation. And then 2022, eight wins was really good. And in a world where the Big Ten West is kind of always open for business, for somebody to jump up and seize it, Yes, they lost Devin Witherspoon to the, a top five pick in, in the NFL draft at cornerback. Yes, they lost Ryan Walters, their defensive coordinator, who took the Purdue head coaching job. But I thought they still had enough to like continue their upward trajectory, and they didn't. Yeah. And they still had Jerzon Newton, who's awesome. They had Luke Altmaier at quarterback, and they, they still had Isaiah Williams at receiver, who's really good. We know they also lost Chase Brown at running back, so... I don't know. Maybe the expectations were too high because they really did lose some talent from 2022. I just thought Bielema was going to get it, like, stay on track. And they didn't even make a bowl game. And so I think it is a little... Illinois and Nebraska finished with the same record. One's our program on the rise and one's our most disappointing, but also I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's a momentum thing for me, which you touched on, right? I just It just felt like they were taking steps there to be perhaps, you know, among the most competitive programs in the big 10 West. And, you know, they were all kind of, kind of the same this year, a lot of those teams. So maybe that makes it even more difficult to, to kind of climb up the way we thought that, that Illinois might, but they only ended up with three big 10 wins. Um, the, I expected the defense to take a step back, but it took a bigger step back than, than I was anticipating. Um, and it was just kind of disappointing to see them not sustain when, when, I thought there was a reason to kind of believe in what Brett Bielema was was building there. So that's like that's one way to be disappointing. I, I think another team that had a compelling case for this is Pitt. Um, yeah, Pitt just like kind of fell off like in dramatic fashion, um, and I did not think Pat Narduzzi did a very good job this year to the point where we were talking about like you're not going to fire him this year, but um, so like Pitt shouldn't be in that position. So they they were another disappointing team this year. But I think that you know Illinois to kind of you know, for, on its own sort of stymie its own program momentum um, was a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think, I think maybe like, I think I had bigger expectations for Illinois. Like the pit drop off was stark, but I almost understood it more because we had talked about, they were one, a handful of programs with double digit wins the previous two years. And it's like, there's just, you know, it kind of felt like a reset year. And that was terrible. It was like a it was like a fall off a cliff year, but but I'm I'll I'll still stand by Illinois. That's why we because we think Brett Bielema is good. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Sometimes when you're disappointed, you have to have expectations in Correct. order to disappoint. So it's almost sort of like really it's it's a, an award to be proud of. Brett Bielema, hey most hey guys gather round. Most disappointing team. That means they thought we'd be good. <laughs> Next award is Best Win Over the South. This is an award that can only be handed out on Kings of the North. And there's not a ton to choose from, frankly, Bill Landis. So our award for the Best Win Over the South is Michigan's win over Alabama in a college football playoff semifinal. Let me run through a couple of the other ones. There like, weren't a ton in the regular season. Maryland beat Virginia. I don't know if that's going to get it done for anybody. Virginia Tech is a border school for now. So, like, we don't, they're not in the North. I don't know that they're in the South, but both Rutgers and Purdue beat Virginia Tech. Um, you know, Notre Dame in its schedule with an ACC heavy schedule. Notre Dame beat NC State, Duke. They beat USC, which is in Southern California. They beat Wake Forest. 
Oregon in a non-conference game beat Texas Tech. Utah had, had actually two good wins. They played Florida and Baylor in the non-conference, which is like, man, that's two real non-conference games, and they won both of them. Um, some A couple bowl wins. Maryland beat Auburn in a bowl. Rutgers beat Miami in a bowl. But really, this is it. This is the only. This is the only choice. Wolverine. Yeah. No. It. Ha- yeah. It has to be this one. But if if we were in an alternate universe where this game never happened, then uh, I would very much relish the opportunity to talk about Rutgers beating Miami in a bowl game because that was awesome to see. But yeah, this is Michigan in the Rose Bowl against the Tide, ending the Nick Saban dynasty with a playoff win to punch a ticket to the national title game that it ultimately won. You know, there's no other competition for this. It has to be this game. We want more opportunities uh, at games like this. Part of the deal is like, for instance, Ohio State, which sometimes plays games like this, their big non-conference game this year was against Notre Dame. So that could be a Southern win. Like Wisconsin and Washington State played each other as their big non-conference game. So that took away, you know, an opportunity for for maybe a, a team to get uh, a non-conference game there. Like Michigan just didn't play a game like this. West Virginia and Penn State played each other. They were the big non-conference game. So there just weren't opportunities there. For instance, 2024, Michigan-Texas, baby. Like we've got this on the docket. Michigan's playing Texas in 24 and 27 and Oklahoma in 25 and 26. So there's going to be like that. We should have more regular season opportunities. Yeah for North teams to beat good Southern teams. And we just didn't have as many. It wasn't like a complete failure. When you look at the, like the losses in the regular season, Northwestern lost to Duke in a non-conference game. Notre Dame lost to Clemson. But a lot of the other ones are just like the regular season losses, just like Syracuse losing ACC games to everybody in the South. Syracuse five and one against the North one and six against the South, by the way, I did note that. Mm. And then some bowl game losses, Missouri over Ohio State, Old Miss over Penn State, Tennessee over Iowa, LSU over Wisconsin. Those SEC Big Ten matchups, which don't mean as much as nearly as much as they used to, did not go very well for the North. But that they got the one that mattered. That's right. Michigan over Bama. That's the one that uh, that really meant something to everybody. So now, uh, what's the next one up here? It's uh, is it the best the best game of the year? Right, best game of the year. Oregon Washington. We feel confident, and this is the regular season game that comes down to a missed field goal by Oregon at the end of the game that they tried to tie it. We feel pretty good about this one, right? Yeah, it was a great kind of, not necessarily back and forth, but like tight throughout the entire game, incredibly high stakes, you know, fourth down gambles, um, some that paid off, some that didn't. I think um, the stars on both teams, maybe not playing entire games that you expected them to play, but certainly, you know, having moments um, to kind of flash flash their their ceilings as well. So yeah, I, I don't like the Michigan Ohio State game was a good game um, and tight, but this one was that plus I think a little more entertaining. Um, yeah. So I thought this was a no brainer. Yeah, high level, right? I mean, it's like there was a lot of hype to the game, and then it lived up to the hype. I mean, it was like the biggest regular season game in the Pac-12 in decades and decades and decades. And then I, and I think everybody walked away from that game thinking that they were two really good teams. And again, a lot of people thought in the moment that the better team lost and that Oregon would get revenge of the PAC 12 title game. And then, then that did not happen. And Washington makes the national championship game, but Oregon was right there. I, I, I do think, do you think Oregon could have won the national championship this year? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. I think they had the balance on offense, the play in the trenches, and a good enough defense to win if they had gotten in. You know what we call that? Duck mentality. Oh, oh man, you're lucky you didn't have to face Oregon, baby. But actually, I mean, but we mean it. We we mean it. Yeah. It's not like it was dog mentality. So that's the best game. There, there. I think again, there's like the really high level. You know, it was a really good game. Like, well, it was a good ending. Ohio State Notre Dame was pretty. It was a good. End. It was a, it was a good final uh, yeah. two minutes. Yeah. And Michigan Ohio State was was a pretty good game. Yeah. Right. Like that was good. Uh-huh. So I mean, like there there were other there were other candidates here for sure. Um, we separated this out. I think this was important to do. We also have a category that is craziest game, and you're locked in on this, right? We're talking yeah. snow. We're talking. Iowa State, Kansas State as our craziest game of the year. Yeah, so snow games, which I think typically mean like low-scoring slogs, and this was the opposite of that. This was incredibly high-scoring, and Iowa State, what, had five touchdowns of 60 yards or more in this game, three of them yeah. for Mabu Sama, the, the running back. Um, just wild. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't recall seeing a game played in, played in those kind of conditions that had that many explosive plays. Um, so that was why this had to be the choice for craziest game. couple other nominees. We have to remember Colorado played two double overtime games. The Colorado-Colorado State game. Yeah, that was great. The whole country was up until 2 a.m. watching that game, right? Mm-hmm. Bonkers. And then the Colorado-Stanford game also went double overtime. Stanford won that one, but that was like really good. The Apple Cup was really good, right? Washington has to pull out like a little bit of a trick play on fourth down to keep their hopes alive for Washington to stay on track for a Pac-12 championship, a national championship opportunity by beating their rival mm-hmm. in the last like traditional version of the Apple Cup. So that was a huge, crazy game that I think was like lived up to the hype. Northwestern had a crazy comeback early in the season. They came back from like down four touchdowns and beat Minnesota in overtime. I think that's worth acknowledging. The Minnesota-Iowa game where the Cooper DeGene punt return that would have won the game for Iowa was called off because the ref said that he signaled for fair catch when he was trying to point to stay away from the ball. Kirk Ferentz is still a mad, still mad about that game today. I think that was pretty crazy. And then Illinois in back-to-back weekends beat Minnesota 27, 26 and beat uh, Indiana 48, 45 in overtime. Remember that Illinois-Minnesota game? It's like they hit Isaiah Williams, the backup quarterback, right? John Paddock comes in John Paddock, yeah. and hits Isaiah Williams with like a 50-yard pass in the last minute of the game. That was crazy. So I think we're always going to have decent nominees. It's how we roll in the North, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're we like crazy. to be – it's – yes. We don't – it's like um, – I feel like the 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 North is like uh, taking over. Like the people used to like to call it the Pac-12 after dark games just to get crazy. Yeah. I just feel like that's like sort of prevalent now throughout all Northern football, which is great. Yeah, yeah. North after dark, people like to talk about Maction, mm-hmm. Northshin. That's not as good. North uh, Northshin. Yeah, I don't like that. Well, we got a Northac Northac. We'll work it out. We got a whole off season. North Action North Action sounds like a athlete's foot medication. We would also endorse that. Yeah. Oh, that's what we need. We're very like we we're very careful with who we want to associate ourselves with on Kings mm-hmm. North. There's money to be made because we're taking over the North, but we're not just getting it. We're not taking any ad, but anything that would help our itchy feet. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just show us. We'll screenshot this. These two guys, don't they look like they have the itchiest <laughs> feet? Oh my god. And that guy that do you hear that guy in eighth grade was most studious? He was. And that was Speedich. 
North Action. Biggest upset. Remember when Colorado was the number one story in college football? Why? Yes. Yeah. Because they beat the team that played in the national championship game. They were a 21-point underdog to TCU, and Colorado over TCU has to be our biggest upset of the year. It was not a huge year for upsets in college football generally. No. And this was – I was trying to look by point spread. Now that I know that we're doing these awards, I'll try to track this better during the year. I think – I was surprised I couldn't like find a list. There's every all we're, The whole world is betting sites now. I could not find a, a list in a quick Google search that was like the 10 best, the 10 biggest upsets by point spread in 2023. I couldn't find that, but I don't yeah. know if there were many more. You also, what was the one that you cited? Oh, um, was it Army over Air Force? When Air yeah. Force was 8 0? Yeah, because I was having a similar issue back when that game happened, trying to find largest spread upsets. Um, but I, I, I think this this game was certainly up there as a three touchdown spread. There might have been a couple of others. Um, I think Virginia won a game. It was like a pretty big underdog, mm. maybe against North Carolina. North Carolina yeah, yeah. Um, but this one was certainly near the top of the list. And also, like I, people might see this and like roll their eyes, like Colorado fatigue, whatever. Neither one of these teams ended up being particularly good. Just like I ask you to go back and put yourself in the moment when this game was yeah. happening. Everyone was watching it. Everyone went nuts, including us when Colorado won um, and it was like for the first month of the season, it was like the only game anyone was talking about. Yeah. Um, so it was a mon- It was a huge, huge upset for Colorado at the time. Yeah. It's it. We're not here. Like you said, we're not, we're not just doing stats. We're not just doing like raw numbers because then, a, then a robot could do this and I will die before I let a robot do our podcast, do our, do our YouTube show. But by the numbers, I think it was, it. there were two other contenders at least that I wanted to talk about. One is Indiana was a nine and a half point favorite. Excuse me. Indiana was a nine and a half point underdog and beat Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And Indiana, like they beat Akron, Indiana State, and Wisconsin this year. And like Wisconsin made a bowl game. It was like supposed to be good. Like, you know what I mean? Like that. It was at Wisconsin and, too, right? Yeah, I think that's Isn't right. Like, yeah. like that was like, oh, like I think Indiana, you knew, um, you knew Tom Allen was getting fired probably, right? And so you thought Indiana was sort of like, dead team walking and there was a lot of uh sort of excitement and expectation around wisconsin this year and so yeah they went three and nine they beat indiana state they beat akron in quadruple overtime and then they managed to break up what would have been uh an eight game losing streak the end of the year instead they went one and seven because they beat wisconsin in a game that like nobody really thought they had any right winning. So like, that's, that's, I, I thought it were at least worth talking about. It actually wasn't yeah. Bloomington. It wasn't at Madison. Oh, it was. Okay. And then the other one, which is a pretty huge one. And it was only an eight point spread. So I'm a little bit surprised, but Pitt in the middle of its terrible year beat Louisville. When Louisville was undefeated, I think. And Louisville was like a, a, a dark horse sort of like college football playoff contender. And Pitt kind of put him put it on him, man, in like the middle of a season in which Pitt didn't do anything else. So again, by point spread, it's only eight, but you know, kind of a nice win for for Pitt in what was otherwise uh, a lost year. They're three and nine, and one of their wins was a 38-21 victory over a team that was six and one and ranked 14th in the country at the time. Yeah, so Louisville was. 
undefeated and had just beaten Notre Dame and then went to Pitt and lost. And then the next week went to went to a ranked Duke and shut them out. So like in the middle of the two biggest wins of the Louisville season, Pitt's Pitt inexplicably beat them 38 to 21. So anyway, we'll we'll give nods to those games, but uh, but pretty clearly the uh, biggest upset is Colorado over TCU. So let's wrap up our our team awards as our superlatives for the year here on Kings of the North. Best offense, Washington. Best defense, Michigan. Program on the rise, Nebraska. Most improved, West Virginia. Most disappointing is Illinois. Best win over the South is Michigan over Alabama in a college football playoff semifinal. Best game was the regular season game between Washington and Oregon. The craziest game is Iowa State versus Kansas State in the snow. And the biggest upset was Colorado over TCU as a three-touchdown underdog to open the season. When we come back, time to officially name our KOTN All-North All-Americans. We'll do that next on Kings of the North. Time now for our Kings of the North All-North teams. We did this in midseason, Landis. All North offense, all North defense. We did not change a ton for our team here at the end of the year, but is that to be expected? Maybe with teams like this? Yeah, I I think so. Well, I mean, I guess sometimes it can work out that the guys we have on the midseason team don't continue that play on through the rest of the year. But for a lot of these guys, that just ended up being the case. So I think that there were. There were more people in the running, I think, to consider at the end of the year than there were midseason. But even then, the, a lot of the guys we had on the midseason team still were in a stronger position to, to kind of stay there. And I will say, li- listen, we, we're only taking half the country. There's still a lot of really good players. We didn't do a second team. We didn't do a third team. We didn't do honorable mention. I do think you want to be representative. I do think you want to capture um the players who weren't just the best, but who mattered the most for their success of their teams. And so I do think in the end, like the best teams should have more guys on yeah. this. Like, first of all, it's like, well, they're the best team. They must have the best players, but I think you'll see that reflected a little bit in some of the changes that we made. And we will start with the all North offense and our quarterback is Michael Penix. It still is something to me, at least a little bit bill that, the Pac-12 conference made Bo Nix the first-team quarterback and Michael Penix second team. Michael Penix did finish higher in the Heisman voting, but Penix is is our guy, right? Penix is our guy. Like I I I get Nix over Penix. Like if you if you want to have that conversation, because statistically he has the argument if in most categories across the board. They also played twice. So like, and, and yes. Penix came out on top both times and it wasn't like Michael Penix didn't play well in both those games. Like he played, I think really well in both those games. Um, so that's enough for me to, to get, to lean toward Penix here. And then, you know, took a scene in the national title game, had to, had the, you know, minimum, certainly baseline production of someone that you'd want to consider for this award. Um, so it was never really a back and forth for me. I was pretty dead set on Penix being this, being this guy. No, I, I agree with that. Our two running backs, Audric Estime from Notre Dame. He stayed from the midseason team. We did make a switch. We now go with Blake Corum from Michigan instead of Damian Martinez from Oregon State. You look at like yards after contract, after contact, yards per carry, that kind of thing. Like that does matter, and it mattered us to us to us more in the midseason, Bill. But Blake Corum was the engine of the national champions in a lot of ways. And you saw what he did, especially in overtime against Alabama. Um, I, I thought this was a way we had to lean. I understood why, sort of statistically, 
you know, you thought maybe Blake Corm wasn't as explosive this year as last year. Why Blake Corm wasn't on our midseason team, but I think he should be first team all north here at the end of the year. Yeah, I think it makes sense. He ends up uh, third in the north in total rushing yards, has a, a commanding lead in rushing touchdowns. He had 27. The next closest guy had 18. Um, it was a different kind of year for him. The, the reason I didn't have a midseason is because my expectations for him were just were were different from what he ultimately ended up being. And I, I still do think the injury he suffered last year took something away from him in terms of his explosiveness, but he's still an incredible running back. And he's still the engine of the Michigan offense. And he's still, uh, you know, he had the game winning touchdown in the Rose Bowl and um, played well down the stretch for a Michigan team that, that really needed it. So he does belong here. Other skill guys didn't change. We stayed with Bucky Irving as our all purpose guy, the dual threat. Uh, running back from Oregon, and then our three receivers, Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State, Roma Dunze from Washington, and Troy Franklin from Oregon. Is is there anybody that made you second-guess yourself on those four picks? No, no, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, we were considering like the the all-purpose slot. Like we have, We've had Damian Martinez from Oregon State like pretty highly regarded most of the year. Did like he deserved to get put in there. Uh, I think it's fine to not have them there. Like we end up not having like a Isaiah Williams or um, you know like a Tez Johnson from Oregon, but clearly Troy Franklin was was more of a focal point in that offense than Tez Johnson was. So like there's a lot of productive receivers, like a bunch of guys that have like north of 700 receiving yards. But um, I think those three are the, are the top three clearly. Isn't it nice how north of something means good and south of something means bad? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. What a coincidence. We did make a change at tight end. We had Cade Stover from Ohio State at midseason. We now switch it to Colston Loveland from Michigan. I think this is partly attributable to the fact that it was Cade Stover wasn't really himself because of injuries that he was battling toward the end of the year. But yeah. I also think you just saw how vital Colston Loveland was to what Michigan wanted to do offensively. I think those two things combined led to us flipping this yeah and it it was close for me when we did it originally and mitchell evans from notre dame was in that conversation as as well but he also suffered a a seizing ending injury and and just you know didn't have the opportunity to continue to be productive um the production for loveland and stover is very similar but yeah stover did a lot of his work kind of in the first half first eight games or so of the season and then just kind of tapered off by the end and you know, played in the bowl game, but didn't have a, a really all that strong of a game blocking or receiving. Um, credit to him for like playing through some stuff to help yeah. Ohio State, but but Colston Loveland just has had a little more consistency and, and obviously showed up a little more late in the year. Offensive line, four of our guys, four of our five guys stayed the same. We stuck with Joe Walt and uh, of Notre Dame and Taliase Fuwaga from Oregon State as our two tackles. We stuck with Jackson Powers Johnson, the Oregon center. And we stayed with Zach Zinter as one of the guards from Michigan, even though he got hurt in the Ohio State game. And even though that in the three games after he was out, the Michigan offensive line played very well. I don't think that takes away from the fact that Zach Zinter was still probably the best guard in college football. We did make a switch from Christian Mahogany from Boston College to Luke Kandra of Cincinnati at the other guard spot, but you're the offensive line guy. What do you think of our picks here, Landis? Yeah, I figured that would stay mostly the same, and we were trying to put this together midseason. The one spot for me that was a little bit of a holdup was just the second guard spot, and Luke Kandra was someone who we, I think, considered him. I think we even talked about at the time when we ended up picking Christian Mahogany, but Luke Kendra ended up having a, a really nice season for you know a Cincinnati offense that didn't do a whole lot, and I don't think people were tuned into all that much. So a guy like Luke Kendra tends to fly under the radar. 
even more than a guard traditionally would, but he had a great season. Um, and the rest of these guys were, were really good. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you that Zinter, even though Michigan did a nice job of, of sort of accounting for his loss um, was still, I, I think the best guard in college football this year. Olu Fashionu from Penn State is going to be a huge high first-round pick uh, yep. in the NFL draft. Washington won the Joe Moore Award for the best offensive line overall. Those guys aren't here, all good players, but these are our five guys, right? We're yeah, okay like Par- Parker Brailsford from from Washington, like redshirt freshman center, had had an amazing year as well. Just so happened that maybe the best guard in the co- or best center in the country in Jackson Powers Johnson was in the same league as him. Um, it was a Troy Fautanu, like I, th- I think yeah. for Washington could have, could have also gotten some consideration here. Um, I didn't, I, it wasn't me like taking into account that I didn't think Washington's offensive line played very well in the national championship game. Um, collectively, it's a very good line. Individually, I don't know if anyone stands out as much as the five guys we picked here. And Dragon Kessich from Minnesota is our kicker. That's just how that goes. That's right. All right, let's shift to the defense again. Not a ton of changes on the defense. Uh, We stuck with Jonah Ellis as one of our edge guys from Utah, even though he also suffered an injury towards the end of the season. He still was dominant uh, for much of the year, but we did switch the other edge guy. Braylon Trice from Washington went nuts in the second Mm -hmm. half, and so he took a spot from Ohio State's JT Tuimolowau. What do we think of that? We hit... I still don't know if this number is correct, but he is credited on Pro Football Focus with having 78 pressures for the year, uh, which is nearly 30 more than the next player um, in in the North. Um, and even if that number is slightly askew, I think if you watch Washington down the stretch, um, Braylon Trice just showed up a whole lot, was winning a lot of one-on-one pass rush situations, I think, really um, throwing opposing offenses um, out of out of sync. And, you know, JT Tuimolau, who's a very good player in his own right, um, had a really good like middle of the year, like around the time that we did this was like, kind of on fire and then didn't really sustain that throughout the rest of the year. He had like kind of a weird injury against Wisconsin that I, I, I'm wondering now how much that might have actually impacted his play because I thought it did take a little bit of a dip um, in the back end of the season, whereas Braylon Trice was just sort of on an upward trajectory for the entire season. Defensive tackle Jerzon Newton of Illinois kept his spot. And as we were getting ready to do this, I was like, oh, I know we're going to have to make one change. I think we have to put Mason Graham on this team. And then I was like, oh, wait, we already had Mason Graham on the team. Nice job by us for putting Mason Graham from from Michigan on our midseason team. He's absolutely needs to be here at the end of the year, right? Yeah, and I think we we had some conversation at the time, like Mason Graham, Tyleek Williams, um, Howard Cross from Notre Dame when we were doing the midseason stuff. Like there were a couple of good candidates. And Mason Graham had not played nearly as many snaps as, as any of the other guys we were considering. And it still ended up being that case for the season, but um I didn't hold that against him. Like the, I guess like it's impressive to play as much as like a Johnny Newton did and still maintain that level of production. But even if Mason Graham wasn't playing on every single snap, um, the snaps that he was played, you noticed that he was out there and he's He's a certified game wrecker uh, and one of the better defensive tackles in, in college football. And again, like a pretty good group of defensive tackles in the North to consider for stuff yeah. like this. So, I mean, yeah. it's hard choices when you're only picking two. So, three of the four guys in the defensive line stayed the same. At linebacker, two of the three stayed the same. That's Jay Higgins, the tackle machine from Iowa, and Muhammad Touré at Rutgers, who just is a, a, a great playmaker. And Rutgers is a defense first team, and he's kind of the guy that helped make that defense go. The switch we made is I was all about Abdul Carter from Penn State on the midseason team, even though there may be statistically PFF grade, that kind of thing. He wasn't up there. This is not 
anything against Abdul Carter. I thought by the end of the year, Michigan needed more representation, and Junior Colson was a really good linebacker for the Michigan Wolverines. He's going pro. And again, I think I, I keep fighting this fight. We're going to fight this fight next week on Kings of the North. We're going to welcome our good friend Ari Wasserman for a guest appearance on here, and we're going to talk about roster building. We're going to talk about talent levels. But I think Mason Graham and Junior Colson are, are illustrative of my point, which is Michigan was really stinking talented. Yeah. And Ju- Junior Colson was really important. Important to what Michigan did, I thought he deserved to be on this team. What do you think of our linebacker choices? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was good that, to get another Michigan guy in there. I think I think that that defense, you know, that we talked about earlier on the show, that was the best in the country by the end of the year, deserved more representation. And it's not merely just like, oh, let's just pick a guy randomly and throw him in there to give Mich- throw Michigan a bone. Like Junior Colson, I think earned this too with the way that he played. And I love Abdul Carter. I think he's a really disruptive player. Um, again, he he was hurt at the end of the year too and kind of playing through it. Um, and like, you know, when you get to play on the stage, like junior Colson did, I think that, and then, and still end up being productive. I think that matters too. So, um, you know, he wasn't Jay, Jay Higgins production is way above anyone else's here just in terms of like sheer amount of tackles. Um, but to and Colson, I think were impact players on two really good Northern defenses. And, and I'm okay with, um, you know, a tip of the cap towards teams that were productive. So we will go to our, uh, our secondary then. Outside corners, Denzel Burke and Cooper DeGene from Iowa. Denzel Burke from Ohio State. DeGene, another guy that got hurt at the end of the year. We kept him on the team. And then we made a, a change um, for like our, our slot corner, extra defensive back. We went with Mike Sainer still from Michigan. We had Sione Vaki from Utah, who was playing both ways in the middle of the year. What do you think of our three choices here at corner? Again, I, I thought it's kind of tough. Yeah, it was tough. There were, there were some decent corners um, in the North this year. Like I'm, I'm glad or I'm happy with where we ended up, but you know, we don't have like, um, um, Will Johnson from Michigan among our corners. We don't have, uh, like TJ Tampa from Iowa state was a really good cornerback this year. Um, Beanie Bishop at West Virginia had an excellent season. Like there are, these are guys I'm talking about that would probably be like on our second team if we had one. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure to mention them even if, if they don't, make the list here, but um, really good. I think defensive back play in, in the North this year, but I think the three that we landed on here were, were the three best. We certainly had a conversation about Burke versus Will Johnson, yeah. um, but, but wound up at this. And again, I just think Mike Sabre still is such a, like he's talented, but he's such a, I think like an energy force yes. for what Michigan does. I think, I think if we're trying to think about like defining players, of this Michigan team. I, I think it might be Blake Quorum and Mike Sainer still for like, just like who they are and what they do. Yeah. And does that mean they're the best players? I don't know. Does it mean that like they're what makes Michigan go? I think yes. So I'm glad we got Mike Sainer still on this team. Our two safeties sta- uh, stayed the same. Tyler Newman from Minnesota, Hunter Wooler from Wisconsin. Debate or not really? I think there might be some people asking like, where's Xavier Watts, the Notre Dame safety who won the Nagurski award and was a, unanimous All-American this year. That felt weird to me personally that he got so much recognition for what felt like kind of like two big games and one big game in particular against USC. I think like consistency throughout the season, both Tyler Newman and Hunter Waller just had better years than, than Xavier Watts did. So it wasn't much of a conversation to me or for me, but I, I guess I would understand if there was anyone like, how do you not have a guy who was a unanimous All-American on your all north team, but I, I think it's because we tried to take in the totality, the, the, the total bodily of body of work and not um become enamored with you know one or two big games. 
Yeah, so it's tough for for Notre Dame, right? I mean, they they got two guys on the offense with Joe Alt and Audric Estime, but like Howard Cross and um, Xavier Watts probably are guys who like lose debates here that maybe had first all first team All North type seasons that didn't quite make it. Yeah, Tory Taylor's the best punter in the country from Iowa. Mm-hmm. There's like no dispute about that. He was there mid season. He's here at the end of the year. So that's our All North All American team. I believe this is right. Number of players now, again, a lot of our changes were related to Michigan. We added Colston Loveland. We added Mike Sainra still. We added Junior Colson. We added Blake Corum. So we added four Michigan guys to this team, which means we have six Michigan players on our end-of-the-year All-North team. They won the national championship. Like I, I don't think it has to be that way. But I like where we landed, and I and I, I certainly would not apologize for any of those Michigan choices just on their own as individual players in terms of production and talent and level of excellence. I think they earned it on their own, but I'm also glad that we're reflecting what happened in the season. Yeah, and the other thing to consider with Michigan, too, is that midseason, they hadn't they – had, one, they hadn't played anybody like that yeah. would – make i think individuals stand out too they played a ton of guys on defense that you know statistically there were just not a lot of guy michigan guys that kind of stacked up but then when you pay closer attention to them down the stretch in their big games and obviously in the playoff you start to see some of that individual talent shine um and i'm glad we were able to reflect that too so six from michigan three each from washington oregon and iowa two from ohio state notre dame and minnesota and then one each from oregon state cincinnati utah illinois rutgers and wisconsin so 13 of our 28 teams here in the North, represented on our All North uh, end of the year team, and they get uh, they all get mini swords that we will buy at the Renaissance Fair next oh, year, nice. and and we'll just send them we'll send them to your family. Yeah, right? just one day, somebody in your family, your parents, your grandparents, your aunt and uncle, your cousins, they'll just get a mini sword in the mail, and you'll know what's up. We won't even have a note. No, It'll be it like it's like yeah, yeah, Northern football. You know what it means. That's actually, we've been searching for like, it just means more. Like our version, like the Southern, it just means more. Our version of that, you know what it means. You know what it means. Yeah. I think that might be it. I, I was, I had previously, when I did my guest spot on the College Football Survivor show, and I was trying to explain like this Northern show to everybody, I think my phrase was like, it just means the appropriate amount. But that's not quite as catchy as you know what it means. You know what it means. Yeah. All right. Very. I. I am. Uh, I am like thirty-six uh, percent focused on the future of the show and sixty-four percent focused on the swag. That's a good balance, I think. That's where you should be. So, okay. Uh, guess what we're doing when we come back? We're handing out the big two. Coach of the North, King of the North. Next on Kings of the North. Here now with the two big awards from Kings of the North. First is Coach of the North, then we'll do King of the North, which is best player. Coach of the North, uh, Bill Landis, Kalen DeBoer is our winner of Washington. Yeah. There's a gazillion national Coach of the war- Coach of the Year awards. Uh, he won a bunch of them. So, you know, I don't know if he'll take his little sword or not. But who else do you think is in the mix here that was a contender for our Coach of the North? I think Dan Lanning. Um, at Oregon, I think, you know, for different reasons, maybe Neil Brown at West Virginia, maybe she should garner at least a little bit of discussion. Um, Jim Harbaugh, I, I think not because like Michigan won half its games without him. Um, 
and it was a complicated season. So like any Michigan fan wondering why the national championship head coach wasn't picked, that's why. At least that's where I'm that's how I approach it. Maybe you think of it differently. Um David Braun Northwestern. David Braun at Northwestern. Yeah. That might be the extent of it, I, I think. Um so like a handful, I guess we're we're in consideration. Yeah, because even we're talking about like some of the more improved teams, like I don't know that that means Jeff Halfley at Boston College or Matt Campbell at Iowa State. Yeah, should be winning awards for things. So I, I think it pretty clearly is Greg Schiano. Greg Schiano, maybe Greg Schiano is a good candidate. Rutgers had a, a, an improved season. There, they I think actually might have been a, in a different way. Like if you wanted to throw a vote at Rutgers as program on the rise, I don't I don't know that that would be crazy. Like I don't know that we talked about Rutgers as that, but they did the bring in Ethan Kelly McManus to be their quarterback. So. That's true. We are going to do, I want us to do like the spider web of Northern quarterback connections. Like this guy went here, which means this guy went here, which means this guy went here. We'll have that on a, on a future episode. I think Kalen DeBoer is the obvious winner. And as we record this on Friday morning on January 12th, we don't know what's going to happen. Kalen DeBoer is the number one candidate in the rumor mill to be the new coach at Alabama. If and when he leaves Washington, we will have long discussions about what it means for the Washington Huskies as Washington comes to the Big Ten, who they get in there. What do you think of Kalen DeBoer as the Alabama head coach, though? Yeah, I mean, he's a winner, right? He's a, he's a proven winner everywhere he's been. So I get that as a very compelling selling point. Like managing booster culture and at a major SEC program I think is a very new world or would be a very new world for Kalen DeBoer. And I, I do have some questions about that as I would about any coach who doesn't really have any experience with that going down there and then trying to run things like that's in the, in the recent days since Nick Saban's retiring, like obviously all the on field accolades are what they are, but, but a major talking point has been how Nick went down to Alabama and got a place that had a bunch of different people who wanted power and influence influence aligned to make Alabama into the machine that it became. And obviously whoever goes there doesn't have to do all the work to get that alignment where it needs to be, but you have to maintain it. And I think that is a tremendous challenge for whoever the new coach is that um, maybe is not discussed enough. And I wonder about Kalen DeBoer's, you know, um, appetite for dealing with that kind of stuff. I wonder about the recruiting because he hasn't won because of recruiting, right? You don't win at the University of Sioux Falls because of recruiting. You don't win at Fresno State because of recruiting. Yes, and you also don't get cachet with recruits for winning at Fresno State and Sioux Falls. So I thought Dan Lanning made so much sense at Alabama because of that recruiting aspect. He's already shown that. I am a little apprehensive of a for a guy who's sort of been like an underdog coach. Like he's elevated places. And Saban's experience at LSU was just like so valuable to Alabama. It's like you knew he could do it, right? Mm -hmm. I I just don't know about this. I worry about the fit, and I feel like we've had a JV version of this happen, and it was disastrous. And are there things that we can draw from Brian Harson going from Boise State to Auburn and it winding up in flames? Is yeah. not Boise State to Auburn the JV version of Washington to Alabama? Feels like it a little bit, and it seems like it chewed Brian Harson out and spit him out as a firehead coach. Yeah, so I would worry about that too. Now, the other part of this is 
there have been coaches. I think Jim Tressel is a good example. It's like, all right, well, you're winning at Youngstown State. What are you going to do? It's like, you're going to go to Ohio State and recruit. And Jim Tressel won a national championship, was incredibly successful there. Now, he wasn't incredibly successful there necessarily because of recruiting. It was more of a developmental program. And I would almost wonder, and I, this is not to get off on a tangent, but like, would Jim Tressel be the right hire if, if, for this version of Ohio State. If Ryan Day was abducted by aliens tomorrow and Jim Tressel was dominating at Youngstown State, would that make sense today as a hire, right? The way the sport has evolved. And yeah. that's nothing against anybody. But I, I I do think in a place like Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Texas, LSU, it's like, man, you've got to have the cachet of like, we're going to get talent. And cultural fit. And I don't even know about the idea of do people do they want to have an aerial assault at Alabama? Like, is that what you want to do? Get down there and chuck it around? Like, it feels a little bit to me like there I mean, are coaches- been that Alabama has been that a couple times throughout. Like, the the Tua teams were that, and the Mac Jones team was that. So I don't know if that'd be too much Save of a departure. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm apprehensive. I don't want to doubt Kalen DeBoer because he did an awesome job at Washington and we're giving him a coach of the year award and being like, well, I don't know about this. But also, if he goes to the South, he's dead to us. So, I mean, we just yeah. matter, right? Yeah, screw him. Yeah. Enjoy your, en- enjoy your sword, traitor. <laughs> Another great t shirt slogan. <laughs> Can we get that message to him? Kalen, Bill and Doug won't talk about you anymore if you go down. That's there. right. So we don't want to lose great coaches to the South when we're here in the North, but like I, I, I worry about cultural fit. I worry about the recruiting aspect of it. Now that doesn't mean I think you should get like Lane Kiffin necessarily, but there are just other guys that just Dan Lanning felt like the guy. And I'm almost a little surprised that didn't happen. So yeah. uh, what Kalen DeBoer did, I mean, everybody's noting this for every award that he got for them, the transition from Chris Peterson to Jimmy Lake, I thought that was a great hire. I thought that was going to work. It was disastrous. And that they rebound with Kalen DeBoer like this is amazing. And it is a tribute to everybody who stuck around there through the tough times at Washington. It is a tribute to Kalen DeBoer to get people on the right page. Certainly, maybe if he leaves, maybe Ryan Grubb, his offensive coordinator, just sticks around and takes over the program. That that could certainly work. But we have to give a tip of the cap for him riding a, a ship that really was in trouble at one point and and w- this is not washington's birthright and for him to have two amazing seasons and be a guy who has won every place he's been he's worthy of our little sword yeah he is and i think too to kind of change the identity of a program so quickly and get that buy-in so immediately to the point where you're playing for a national title is really impressive and i and i think in some ways more difficult now than it used to be when you have um kind of like so many different guys coming into your roster from so many different places with so many different levels of experience. Like if you were just taking over a team full of guys that were recruited out of high school and got them to buy in, that's one thing, but like to get those, those guys to buy in along with your transfers in a way that makes you a national title contender so quickly is, you know, worthy of this kind of award. Congratulations to Kalen DeBoer, coach of the North. Now we will hand out our King of the North award. We have officially, right. It's not the night of the North. It just didn't sound right. We are the kings of the north. You and I aren't the kings. It's just the show. Yeah. But the player, the best player in the north is the king of the north. And this maybe is a crown. Maybe. I think it should be a crown. Yeah. Would you rather have a crown or a sword? I'd rather have a crown. I don't trust myself with a sword. That's true. Yeah. 
I don't trust myself with a sword. KOTN. Do you know how many of the last 20 Heisman winners came from the North? Oh. Uh, of the last 20? So that goes back to 2003? 2004. Yeah. 2004. Uh, was it three? Two. Two. Okay. Do you know who they are? Uh, Troy Smith. Troy Smith, Ohio State quarterback, 2006. Um, no. Marcus, uh, Marcus Mariota. Marcus Mariota. From yeah. Oregon in 2014. Yep. The last 50 years, 15 Northern Heisman winners. 15 of the last 50, two of the last 20. This is why I want to do this. This is why we want to do this. Because the actual, like, sort of the beginnings of this show, uh, we could act like we knew it. We have acted like we knew the North was going to be great. That's it right. actually was to sort of acknowledge the idea that the South has some inherent advantages, mostly with recruiting base, and that to for the North to bang its head against the wall and be like, like we're trying, man, but what we just can't beat them. We wanted to then say, we get it. Don't stop trying, but let's acknowledge that you just live in a different world and that your success has value too, even if you're not beating the South. Now they beat them. Woo! But like this Heisman discussion and the, our King of the North, I think actually maybe in the moment better represents that ideal of, of, of our KOTN show, which is that contextualizing and celebrating Northern accomplishments, even if it's not as quite as good or acknowledged the same way as the South, because it's just not quite the same. So this idea, Bill, this is why I think this award is really cool. And I want to run through 50 years of it because I do think it's interesting because guess what? Does it surprise you? That the South has won 35 of the last 50 and 18 of the last 20 Heisman trophies? No. No. Most of the time, a Northern player in the Heisman voting at least finished in the top five. But I'm going to run through this list, and this is going to take a little bit of a time, but I hope people find it interesting because these are the types of guys that would have won the King of the North in the last 50 years. You and I and our future voting panel are not beholden to the Heisman vote, but this is all we have right now because there is no award for the best Northern player. So we'll say, well, who's the highest Northern finisher is the Heisman Trophy voting? And I'm going to throw some names at you that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that guy. And then sometimes you're going to be like, what guy? Because <laughs> I did that, too. 50 years. Here we go. 1974, Archie Griffin. 1975, Archie Griffin. 1976, Tony Dorsett. Good start for the North. Yeah. 50 years ago, they were rolling, baby. That's Ohio State, Ohio State pit. 1977, highest Northern finisher is Notre Dame tight end Ken McAfee, who I have never heard of. Nope. Sounds like Sorry. If you're a Notre Dame fan, we hope there are some Notre Dame fans watching this. Ken McAfee would have a great chance to be the king of the North. That's why we're doing this. 1978, number two Heisman finisher, Chuck Fusina, Penn State quarterback. You've heard of Chuck Fusina, right? Yeah, I have, yes. Chuck Fusina, quarterback of the Philadelphia Stars in the USFL. I loved the Philadelphia Stars. And if you want to sit down and do a whole show about Chuck Fusina and Scott Fitzke and Sam Mills, and who was there running? They had an awesome running back. I loved the Philadelphia Stars. Chuck Fusina made that happen. He'd be a king of the North. 
There's a couple of these guys who pop in. 1979, it's Mark Wilson, the BYU quarterback. There was a stretch there where people were like, I don't know who to vote for in the Heisman, the BYU quarterback. Because <laughs> people at that point in time, 50 years ago, were like, what is offense? Yeah. And they were like, I, this BYU guy threw for like 9,000 yards. And they were like, do you understand what they're doing there? Mark Wilson, the BYU quarterback in 1979, third in the Heisman. Could be a king of the North. 1980, awesome one. Second in the Heisman to South Carolina running back George Rogers was Pitt defensive end Hugh Green. How bad do you want to give either give Hugh Green a sword or place a crown on his head? Yeah, he deserves a crown. Be a great king of the North. 1981, BYU quarterback. Do you know who it is? Who would have been a king of the North? He would have been great at the banquet. Uh, McMahon? Jim McMahon finished yeah. third in the Heisman. 81, could be our king of the North. 1982, this would be a great one. Michigan receiver Anthony Carter, fourth in the Heisman, could be a king of the North. 83 and 84, actual Northern Heisman winners, Mike Rogier, the Nebraska running back, Doug Flutie, the Boston College quarterback. 1985, close, super close Heisman race. I think people realize it was this close because Bo Jackson won. He's Bo Jackson. Chuck Long, Iowa quarterback, could be our king of the North, second in the Heisman voting. 1986, Vinny Testaverde is the winner. We've got Paul Palmer, Temple running back. Oh, number yeah. two, how bad do you want to give a Temple running back? King of the North. King of the North resides in North Philadelphia. Yeah, And absolutely. you know who would have been another contender that year battling? You and I would have had a knockdown drag out. Paul Palmer or Jim Harbaugh, who finished oh, wow. third in the Heisman voting in 1986 as the Michigan yeah. quarterback. Love that. How, how much would you? We didn't give Jim Harbaugh... Coach of the North, he could have been the king of the North in 1986. 1987, Notre Dame receiver Tim Brown actually wins it. 1988, I love this one. This is pretty low. The highest Northern finisher in the Heisman race was fifth, Major Harris, West Virginia Ooh. quarterback. How bad do you want that guy to be a king of the North? Yeah, he had to change his name, the King Harris. He also uh, finished third in the Heisman voting in 1989, but he would not have gotten it. Anthony Thompson, Indiana running back, second in the Heisman in 1989. Could be a king of the North. 1990, Ty Detmer, the BYU quarterback, won it. 91, Desmond Howard, Michigan receiver, won it. 1992, it's... Uh, oh, I got to look this guy up because I am not sure. This is not a super familiar name to me either, and I can't read my handwriting. The 1992 Heisman voting was very... Southern-centric. It was Gino Toretta won. Marshall Falk from San Diego State was second. Garrison Hurst from Georgia was third. Marvin Jones, defensive player from Florida State, was fourth. And Reggie Brooks, who rushed for 1,343 yards for Notre Dame. Notre Dame running back Reggie Brooks was fifth and would have been our best King of the North candidate. You familiar with Reggie? I'm not familiar with Reggie, but uh, Drew Bledsoe, Washington State, would have also been a compelling uh, yeah. candidate that year. Let's have that discussion. Yeah. 93, Glenn Foley, who later went on to be in the Eagles, was the number five Heisman finisher. He's the Boston College quarterback, Glenn Foley. It's Glenn Fry. Got that one wrong. Uh, 94, 95, Rashawn Salam and Eddie George won it. Those were actual Northern Heisman winners. 96, Troy Davis from Iowa State, running back, finished second to Heisman. Would have been interesting for us. 97, it's Charles Woodson. 98, you want to do this? Do you want to do this? You want Donovan McNabb to be a king of the North or what? I absolutely do. Fifth in the Heisman. And then Kansas State's a border team for us. Michael Bishop, the quarterback, finished second. We'd have to figure that out. But I think you might have been pushing for Donovan McNabb, Syracuse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Ron Dane won it in 99. 2000, you want to give a King of the North award to Drew Brees, Purdue quarterback, third to Heisman? You cool with that? Yep. Um, Tim Crouch. It's Tim Crouch. It's Tim Couch. It's not Tim Crouch. It's Greg Crouch. Who's the Nebraska guy who won the Heisman? Eric Crouch. Chad Crouch. Why am I blanking on that? Eric Crouch won the actual Heisman in 01. There goes our Nebraska audience. Called him Chad Crouch. I'm not watching that show anymore. He looks like a Chad. That's O2, Brad Banks from Iowa. Would have been an interesting king of the north. He finished second in the Heisman. O3, you want to do this? Second in the Heisman, Larry Fitzgerald. Pitt receiver. Yep. Down with that. O4, fourth at the Heisman, Utah quarterback Alex Smith. Pretty cool. O5, fourth in the Heisman, Notre Dame quarterback Brady Quinn. We would have taken that. Troy Smith won it in 06. Now we're in a dry spell here. 07, Dennis Dixon, the Oregon quarterback, who actually was like a really good Heisman candidate. That the year he got hurt? I think so, yeah. He finished fifth. 08, this is about as rough as it gets. Sean Green, the Iowa running back, finished sixth. I think we might have gone with Pat White, the West Virginia quarterback who finished seventh. We absolutely would have gone with Pat White, yeah. You know who would have gone with in 09? Ndamukong Sue finished yep. fourth. Highest, highest Northern vote getter. We want to give him an award. Uh, LaMichael James from Oregon, the running back, finished third in 2010. You down with him? Yep. This one I don't love. 2011, Monty Ball from Wisconsin. There's two things that people sometimes, and if they don't know what to do, they vote for BYU quarterbacks and Wisconsin running backs. So Monty Ball, fourth in the Heisman in 2011. Manti Teow, who I actually voted for for the Heisman, finished second in 2012. The Johnny Manziel, Notre Dame linebacker, could have won it for us. This one's rough, too. This might be the roughest one. Jordan Lynch, the Northern Illinois quarterback, finished mm. third in the Heisman voting. And Andre Williams, the Boston College running back, finished fourth. They were the best Northern candidates in 13. I mean, I love Jordan Lynch. He was great. He was so fun to watch. All right. He would have gotten your vote. 14 yeah. is the last actual Northern Heisman winner. It's Marcus Mariota. 2015, this one's rough too. Keenan Reynolds, the Navy quarterback, finished fifth. Ezekiel Elliott finished eighth from Ohio State, and Connor Cook finished ninth from Michigan State. So we would have had a long discussion if we we're giving it to the Navy quarterback. Yeah, I don't. That's not a great year. Two thousand sixteen. I think we may have decided that Louisville was a Northern team because we wanted we would have wanted Lamar Jackson. Yeah, to be the king of the North. If not, Jabril Peppers, the Michigan DB, finished fifth. 2017, it's either Lamar Jackson who finished third or Saquon Barkley who finished fourth. Either would be ver worthy Kings of the North. 2018, Dwayne Haskins, the late great Dwayne Haskins, finished third, the Ohio State quarterback. 2019, Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields finished third. Or we could have gone with Chase Young, the Ohio State defensive end who finished fourth, or Jonathan Taylor, the Wisconsin running back who finished fifth. Would have been an interesting conversation in 2019, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. 2020, a little bit of a weird one. Sixth, highest Northern guy was sixth in 2020. Brees Hall, Iowa State running back. You good? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I would have been okay with that. 2021 finished second, Aiden Hutchinson, Michigan defensive end. I think we'd be down with that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 2022, CJ Stroud, Ohio State quarterback, finished third. And this year, Michael Penix finished second. So he wins it for us. Michael Penix is our king of the North. Our five finalists going into the postseason were Jerzon Newton, the Illinois defensive tackle, Joe Alt, the Notre Dame offensive tackle, Marvin Harrison Jr., the Ohio State receiver, and Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback. 
Joe Alt did not play in his bowl, bowl game. Jerzon Newton, Illinois, did not make a bowl game. Marvin Harrison Jr. did not play in the bowl game. Bo Nix did play in the bowl game against Liberty. But Penix is the guy, right? Yeah, Penix is the guy. But I, I also, too, I went into the Pac-12 championship thinking that whichever of the quarterbacks played better slash his team won, that game probably would have been um, not only my pick for King of the North, but also probably my Heisman Trophy yeah. um, pick. Um and that ended up being the case with Michael Penix, who wins King of the North, who I also voted for um, to win the Heisman Trophy. And again, it's not it's not merely statistics, although he leads the country in passing. Um, he's up there in passing touchdowns. It's 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 still a story of the season kind of thing for me too. With with this, even if we try to acknowledge some different guys like a Joe Walt and and a Johnny Newton, um, I think Michael Penix with his play throughout the year, the statistical production, getting his team to the national title, um, is is the is the clear winner this year but it was a i think a very strong field of, of candidates that we had you and i both voted for penix for the heisman do you think and, and we won't belabor the point here but the way he played in the semifinal and the fact that Jaden daniels did not play in the lsu bowl game that that's what ignited the conversation for a lot of other people about whether the heisman should move um i just think in a 12-team playoff that's that's it's 10 times that is exponential how much more it's going to matter in a 12-team playoff because, hey, more best guys on the best teams are going to play. I had somebody, when I was having this fight on Twitter, somebody tweeted me and said, like, guys are going to opt out of the playoff also. I do not think that is going to happen. I don't think so, no. That's, like, insane. To, and, and there might be somebody whose agent's like, listen, man, if you're going to win a national title, that's four more games of wear and tear. That's too much. Just bag it now. Could that happen twice in the first five years of the playoff? Like with, you know, 12 teams times five, 60 teams. Could there be two opt-outs in five years? Maybe. I won't say it's impossible, but I think it's going to encourage. If LSU was in the playoff, Jaden Daniels would have played. If, if Ohio State was in the playoff, Marvin Harrison Jr. would have played. Yeah. If Notre Dame was in the playoff, Joe Walt would have played. So I think that's the whole point. So I don't know if it's realistic or not, but I did find it interesting sort of the tidal wave of discussion around it. And also the idea that people were like, oh man, if only people would have known how good Michael Ten Penix was, that discussion made me want to pitchfork and torch the Heisman offices. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah. There's 900 voters and six of them, 600 of them didn't know who Michael Penix was. I, it's crazy. I mean, yes, yes. That is, that is the, unfortunately the case uh, when it comes with the Heisman trophy. Um, I was glad there, there were a lot of, I think people who I consider like influential in the college football, just a sort of general discourse mocking that idea that somehow people just find out how good Michael Penix is. But clearly I think there was a large section of the Heisman voting populace um, that did not have much of a clue who Michael Penix was or what he was about prior to submitting their votes. So I want us to create an award in my dream world. There's a banquet, there's jousting, there's a medieval theme. We give a sword to a coach and a crown to a player. But I, but even if we fall short of that, Bill, I want award. I want us in the North. The idea that award that that would exist that would have been given to Hugh Green and Anthony Carter and Chuck Long and Major Harris and Troy Davis and Donovan McNabb and Drew Brees and Larry Fitzgerald and Ndamukong Sue and Manti Teow and Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields and Aiden Hutchinson and Brees Hall and Michael Penix. 
that they would have an award that is beyond being a first-team All-American, is beyond being your conference player of the year kind of thing. Not that those don't matter, but that you're representing a style of football, a culture of football. It's a big swath. It's competitive. I think it means something. Like, theoretically, it would mean something. The best player in the North. And it's harder. It's a little bit harder to be awesome in the North. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. It's a I, little bit harder. I think it is, too. Um, I also think in some ways, like, the lineage that you just laid out is can be a little more impressive than the Heisman lineage. Like, if you think about some of the guys who have won the award and what they ultimately became. What, like Chris Wenke and Gino Toretta aren't doing it for you? Yeah, no. Uh, Dan, did Danny Warfel win the Heisman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Dan. Yeah, that's there's not not doing a whole lot for me. Yeah, you you want to be in the Danny Werfel, Gino Toretta world, or you want to hang out with Drew Brees and Larry Fitzgerald and Dominic Sue? Let's do this. Yeah, right. That's I want that I want to be a part of, of of that lineage, please. Yes. So a year from now, our dream is that there is a voting board. There is an actual physical award to hand out. There is at the very least an interview on this show with the person who wins it. And the ultimate dream is that there's a ceremony somewhere with people. And it's one of those things, but like the, they, they gave out the Earl Campbell, Campbell Tyler Rose award for the best player in Texas. And I think Ollie uh, Gordon from Oklahoma state won it. And like he was at a place and on a stage and they gave him an award. Yeah. Texas can do it. The whole North can do it. We sure can. He's going to find right. a medieval, medieval times. that makes sense. Yeah. I can't wait. Have you ever been to medieval times? Yeah, one time in uh, Florida. Oh, for real? Was it? Was yeah. I? It only exists like in my. I've never been to it. I just think I've been to Renaissance Fair where they did have jousting. Uh, was it cool? It was cool, and actually, a Renaissance Fair. Well, I don't know. Like I guess this time of the year in the North, maybe a Renaissance yeah. Fair is hard to come by. Um, but uh, yeah, it was very cool. The food was actually surprisingly good. Yeah, we have to make our very own indoor Renaissance Fair. There's got to be an indoor renaissance fair. Somewhere. Okay. We've got a lot of planning to do. We are going to do shows coming up on Kings of the North where we talk about roster building with our good friend Ori Wasserman from The Athletic, where we predict, do our first round of predictions for the 12-team playoff. That's going to be coming sooner than later because we want to hit some tent poles and say we're going to project that, predict that multiple times during the year. And then I want to through I want to run through like the biggest guys returning, staying in college in the north, right? That's something I want to discuss. I want to run through all the quarterbacks in the north. And then we're going to get into a lot of offseason stuff where really we're really defining what northern college football success is for everybody who's matter who matters in the north. And then um we have to decide if we're taking Missouri, Virginia Tech, Louisville. Kansas and Kansas State and dragging them into our discussion or not. So for now, thanks to everybody for joining us here on KOTN. Tell a friend, you know, it, it it is a different kind of show. It's hard to wrap your head around a little bit as we explain it sometimes. But I do just think we end up having discussions that nobody else is having because nobody thinks about college football through this lens. So uh, we're trying to have a good time. We're trying to bring you information you maybe don't get elsewhere. We're trying to have an interesting discussion. I always think about this, Bill. To have a good show, you have to be interesting and informative. So I always want us to have information within the show that the average person walking down the street doesn't have time to to check on. Yeah. But first, we got to be interesting. So that's why you wear, uh, you know, weird band shirts and talk about awards you won in eighth grade. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting, right? Ah, it's great. Maybe not. Maybe not. 
<laughs> we'll work on it. Uh, no, it was great. I was intrigued by that. So thanks to our producer, Mike Urostowski, for making all this happen. Thanks to Jeremy Birmingham with helping, helping uh, with some of the graphics this week. Uh, but mostly thanks to you guys for kind of being here for this first version in this season of Kings of the North. For Bill Landis, I'm Doug LaMaurice, and that was Kings of the North. <laughs>